Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshananthan, also known as Sugi, author of the forthcoming novel, Brotherless Night. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel, The Good Lieutenant. And this is the episode that no one wants to do. I was going to say, your hello sounded a little wan there for for good reason. (laughs) Hello. Goodbye. I'm sorry. Uh, And yeah, yet we have to keep doing this episode again and again, over and over. So we're recording this episode on Friday, June 3rd at 1 p.m. Central Time. And as of this moment, the most recent mass shootings in the United States are at the Warren Clinic in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where five are dead. At Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, where 19 children and three adults are dead. At the Laguna Woods Church in Orange County, California, where one was killed and five were injured. And the May 14th shooting in Buffalo, New York, where a white shooter targeted black Americans, killing 10 and wounding three. Jiminy Christmas. Yeah. It's been an astonishing period of time. Um, And as you know... Sugi, but our listeners may not know, I'm in France right now, where my wife runs a study abroad program for the University of Missouri, Kansas City. We're in Lyon. Um, And it is hard to describe just how weird and otherworldly these shootings look and feel from here, when you have to get a hunting, where you have to get a hunting or sporting license to own a gun. And in order to do that, you have to pass a psychological evaluation. So you're telling me they don't just give us all rifles to anyone who shows up at Walmart? (laughs) No. Um, and your gun has to be registered or you face a very hefty fine. Um, and still, France has had mass shootings. Um, just not just not in the kind of like everydayness that, that it happens in America. The last big one happened in 2015 during the 2015 Paris attacks, which was a terrorist attack, um, which also happened when I was here. But the assault weapons used in that attack were already illegal in France. And that was seven years ago. You know, and France has tightened its gun laws since then. I think all of us have listened to discussions of how uniquely bananas politics in America makes us the world leader in gun ownership and in mass shootings talk about American exceptionalism. And we may touch on that, but since these politics seem at least um, at the moment unlikely to change, we wanted to talk to someone who is an expert in the ways that we can talk about and write about gun violence. Um, And specifically, we're thinking about how to talk about it when we're addressing children. It seems like teaching children, and I have children, uh, how to think about and cope with gun violence should not be a thing. And yet it is. And to help us navigate that subject, we're thrilled to welcome Amy Archer. Amy Archer holds an MFA from Wilkes University. Her memoir, Fat Girl Skinny, was published in 2016. Her co-edited collection with Lauren Kleinman, My Body, My Words, received praise from Bustle, Bust, and the Brooklyn Rail. Amy's writing has appeared in Pank, Poem, Memoir, Story, The Citron Review, Brevity, and Long Reads. 
She received a notable in Best American Essays 2016, edited by Jonathan Franzen, and her anthology, If I Don't Make It, I Love You, Survivors in the Aftermath of School Shootings, co-edited again with Lauren Kleiman, came out in 2019. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, This anthology is a collection of 60 stories covering... 50 years of shootings in these great United States. I have to say, like, it was an incredibly moving book to read. Just very, very difficult. And, and in the way that, that it goes chronologically backward, you're like, oh, my God. And then Columbine is so late in the book. You're yep. like, holy crap, I can't believe it. There's a, there's a real power in structure. I'm, I'm a believer in structure yep. in fiction. And I think that the way that... Um, you organize this structurally was very powerful. Well, it's can um, I can I speak to that for one? But I'd like to, yeah, sure. Well, that's that. Yeah, we yeah, want to know why so, did you do that? So that How was that a happen? conscious decision, actually, on the part of my therapist. So when Lauren and I undertook this project, we obviously knew that we would need therapists to help us through the process. So I had gone to therapy a little bit as a kid or as a teenager, but. I knew that I had to seek somebody out to help me through this. And as we were in one session, I remember very distinctly saying to her, when you're going through these stories, and Lauren and I just read these stories so many times and through the editing process, you guys know what that's like. You just become so familiar with the the work. Um, I said to her, it's almost like you can see the, the trauma, the trajectory of the trauma. And you can see it growing and growing and growing and becoming more and more urgent. And that was kind of, you know, I I wanted to kind of show the longevity of how it starts, the, the narratives echo that urgency in the beginning, and then how that trauma settles in as we go through the years. So that's why, so it was her idea. She said, you should absolutely structure the narrative that way and start with, at the time, we were going to start with Parkland. And then while we were working on the book, there were two more shootings. So they became chapters as well. So so it was, you know, we really wanted the reader to kind of feel like this trauma doesn't go away. It just kind of settles into you and and sets up camp there. And that hopefully that shines through in the narrative. I mean, I think that... One of the things I, I wrote a novel that is about trauma. It's about war trauma. Um, but but the, the, that book, the only way that I was able to write it was backwards, finally. And so it starts with this with the character, main character, Emma Fowler, doing something terrible. And then the book is about how she arrived at this moment of action. Um, and trauma generally in literature is is can, is connected to dislocation of time because i think that traumatic events cause a kind of dislocation of time right so if you think of catch 22 you know the traumatic event in catch 22 is dislocated in the the time structure of that novel the killing of the of the character snowden if i'm remembering correctly um and so i can give many juan rufo's novel pedro paramo is like dislocated in time and so it's a way of approximating the way i feel like america is dealing with the trauma of these events with a kind of dislocation of time that I think that your book starts to make clear. Yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned Columbine specifically because I think a lot of us use that as some kind of touchstone and think that that was the first mass shooting in a school in this country. And it really it wasn't, as you see from the book. There's many chapters after Columbine in our book. 
and many before. And so I think it's interesting that we all kind of collectively go there. And this is um, kind of a fight that I have a lot. I'm always fighting on Twitter and Facebook and everywhere. I'm always in a social media fight with somebody about this issue. And you know, a lot of people just point to Columbine and, and think that that's where it started. And it, it, it absolutely accelerated after Columbine. But there were in the in those early 90s in that decade, there were we were beginning to see sort of the pattern that emerged later of these young men. When I was researching this, I said, if I have to type the sentence one more time, X took his parents gun to the school and shot his classmates like that. That was very that was the pattern in the 90s shooting. So Thurston, Heath High School, Bethel High School, you had all of that, very similar. So we were starting to see, I think, the emergence of this suburban school shooting that we have unfortunately become so familiar with now. It's interesting, like I I remember, yeah, I mean, I remember watching White Elephant and at the time that Columbine happened, as, as you say, like thinking that it was the first, um, the first such instance and then reading Joanne Beard's essay, The Fourth State of Matter, which is about the shooting at the University of Iowa and um, which is also in your book and realizing, oh, my God, that this that was sort of the first moment when I realized that there was violence that predated, um, I don't know, like, of course, like my limited knowledge of it. Um, which we've talked about that essay on the podcast, haven't we? And we also had Jim Shepard on in an earlier version, many like a number of years ago, to talk about his story, his novel that was based. Yeah, on and I think shooting. like, and yet also with like, even with all of this material out there, I think one of the hardest things, and one of the reasons I think we wanted to do this episode was to think about, um, right, like one of the tasks that we now have is to talk to our children about this violence, um, children who are who who are vicariously traumatized by hearing about school shootings, by being adjacent to them, by surviving them. Um, and so, I mean, that's obviously not vicarious. But, um, I mean, I had a, actually even a hard time talking about taping this episode in front of the children that I know. I was like, we're taping the podcast tomorrow. What is it about? And then I just, like, left the room. I just left. Um, and throughout the book, you refer to your own children, twins. And... I would love to hear you talk a little bit about how you talk to them about what happened. And I guess most recently, of course, we're, you're joining us in the wake of the shootings at Robb Elementary in Uvalde, Texas, which has gotten a huge amount of coverage. There have been other shootings since that shooting. Um, and we're taping this on, on Friday, June 3rd. And I just am how, especially after having worked on this project, how do you talk to your children about the each incident of violence and then the like the ongoingness of it? I mean, it's interesting because I remember when we were working on this book, there was an author who wrote a book about um, West Nickel Mines shooting, the shooting that happened in the Amish schoolhouse here in Pennsylvania. And he told us that his daughters were young at the time and he had to go to a hotel when he was working on that book because he couldn't even kind of bring it into the house. And I, I felt that. I felt that um, while I was working on this book, I I had tried to hide, I think, this issue from my kids for a very long time. And I, I write about that 
Um, I wrote a piece for Long Reads about that called Holding the Pain, how you kind of make this bargain with yourself when your kids are are young. Because my girls were six when Sandy Hook happened. So I said, I'm going to hold that from them because I can't put that on them. And statistically, the odds of them being in a school shooting are very slim. And I just didn't want them to have that fear. So I made this conscious effort to kind of lump that onto my shoulders and hold it for them. But with this latest shooting, which is, you know, almost 10 years to the date, which is in all shape and form, it's a second Sandy Hook. um, It's interesting because I saw a real change in them. They're not, they're not scared. They're not alarmed. This is run of the mill for them. Like they are used to hearing this. And that's very, that to me is more heartbreaking than if they reacted emotionally i guess whereas this is now yeah i'm just going to be totally honest and my kids are are reacting that exact same way like i haven't talked to them about this they know about it there's not any reason for us to discuss it i you know i I was thinking of this whitney like could you imagine being 15 years old and having this happen like I think as a kid as myself I would have been sort of hysterical or very upset or so that just shows you like how not isolated this is for them they've grown up with this this is their life they've grown up doing active shooter drills they've I mean it's just it's part of this country for them and it's it's really so to get back to my kids so the morning after the shooting um they had been in trouble by me for something. They were acting up at school and getting in a fight with each other. The One of the perks of having twins. So I had taken their phones from them and they weren't allowed to bring them to school. And that morning Penelope said to me, can we have our phone back? Because what if there's a shooter in our school? And I carry a lot of very specific details about these shootings like I kind of lock them away and I don't share them with anybody because I think of them like grenades I just don't want to hurt anybody with those details but some of the details that I know surround or involve phones and texting with parents and I just I can put myself in that place and I'm like yes you can have your phones you can have your phones like it was very it's just it it's so pervasive in their lives that's the way that they think now and it's terrifying Sugi, I don't know if you know this, but there was actually a shooting like right next to my university a couple weeks ago before we left for France. And it, you know, my wife was in the student union. There was like a tweet came out. Okay, there's an active shooter on 51st Street and Oak. And I was Mm -hmm. like, okay, here we go. I called her like, okay, we're barricaded in. And then we're like, okay, well, I'm going to go for a run. And the kids were like, she's fine. You know, that was it was very weird. It was very I'm just trying to talk about the regularization of this, but I think that it's, I think that's a sign of trauma. trauma. I don't think that that's, it Mm -hmm. actually is regularized, right? Like flat affect means you're trying to process something that you can't write properly process and you're doing it the wrong way. I think that was the wrong way. I agree with that because it's almost like resignation. Yeah. Defeat. Yeah. I don't know. I was, um, I have a close relative who works as a school administrator who several years ago, um, I don't know if he called me during the bomb threat or if it was after, but he was just kind of like, yeah, I'm at school and this is going on. And I was like, oh my God. And then later 
I'm trying to remember what the body armor discussion was, but we had like a completely fucked up conversation about body armor. And then yesterday I was on Facebook where there was, of course, like there's a million conversations about this going on. And someone was like, oh, we'll just get your kids some soft armor. And I was like, what the fuck is soft armor? I'm sorry that I'm swearing. Sorry that I'm swearing so much. What and is also, that? This is, and yes. Anyway, so um, and then I like went and Googled soft armor and then I calculated if I could afford it. And then uh-huh. I was like, then I was like, why am I buying? Why am I Googling soft armor? And um, that's so crazy. Yeah. I want to. I do want to say that I did offer. I said I'll come pick you up, and she's like, yeah. "I can't leave. I, there's nothing you can do." And so, like, okay, it's well, almost like you're it, just you know? awake, but in a nightmare of some kind. Like it's it's just not even. I I think defeated is a good word for it. Like you're just deflated, defeated, just kind of walking through, going through the motions. I mean, I remember you know, and I'll read you know in a little bit about the morning of Sandy Hook. I remember that so vividly. And it was so, you know, through the years, I look back on that and I think, boy, I had a very like hyperbolic reaction to that. But it was shocking. And I didn't have that kind of reaction to Rob Elementary. I mean, don't get me wrong. I sat in my car and I sobbed, you know, when I heard about it. And I think part of the reason is I I do practice a little more self-protection, which I know is a privilege and... I, you know, I, I kind of try to avoid the news and I, I, I don't necessarily avoid the news, but I avoid the political volleying because I'm so tired of it. And I just, I said to my mother the other day, just text me if they're actually doing something, then I'll tune into it because I can't just listen to, you know, it can't be the Toomey mansion all over again. Like I just can't go through that all over again. Um, but it also so, seems like you're impressively like not you're not desensitized considering the depth to which you submerged yourself in this material. And I mean, like Whitney, I also write about a variety of trauma and I recognize sometimes that I am quite desensitized to it. Like I'm capable of like reeling off a lot of details of things and not really thinking about right. Like your comment about grenades of information is is useful when you think about like so, for example, like not only trauma informed pedagogy. But like just how you talk to your how do you talk to your kids? Like what sorts of practices of self-care do you encourage them to adopt? Um, And so that's I don't know. I think that's really it's impressive to do this work and also to not end up um, desensitized by it. Um, Well, it's interesting because I've been in education for 12 years and yesterday was my last day. I resigned and I'm going to be a senior writer for I'm, I'm going into like a mental health field where I'm going to be tackling issues like that. Like, how do we talk to our kids about gun violence? How do we talk to our kids? You know, how do we deal with generational trauma around gun violence, which is something that's happening now? So I think that it was, a, in a weird way, Rob, Sandy Hook was a turning point for me, but so was Rob Elementary, because I've decided that I just need to use my voice in a different way and focus more on this issue. And that's that's kind of what I'm doing. And I felt like... I didn't have that ability when my kids were little, I think because the weight of what I was holding for all of us was so heavy, whereas I feel like now they can kind of hold it a little bit and I can get out there and try to do something. I mean, that's the best way to describe it. Um, Not that this, you know, obviously I did something for it with this book as well, but just kind of engage daily with this kind of subject matter. Um, So... 
I'm not giving up. And I think that's kind of the most important thing is even though we feel deflated, we feel defeated that, you know, we don't, we don't give up. Like there has been a lot of, of gun regulation passed, good and bad, but a lot of good through groups like Moms Demand and Every Town and Gabby Giffords and stuff like that. Like they've, they've made progress. And I think if everybody's just kind of like, oh my God, this is like, it, it's, pointless to even try then that's where we're going to really lose ground and that's very dangerous i think i wonder if you would read for us from that section on on sandy hook i think it's chapter chapter nine sure i have to warn you i don't always get through it (laughs) as as much as you as much as you care to or can yeah 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 so on the morning of december 14th 2012 one of my twin daughters stayed home from school warm from fever She drifted in and out of sleep as I cleaned around her. The house was still out of sorts from the girl's sixth birthday party, only two days prior. And shortly after 10 o'clock, I started receiving texts from my more news-conscious friends, alerting me to a school shooting unfolding at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. On the news, there were dozens of children with terror on their faces, walking in connected ropes through the parking lot. The adults looked just as horrified. Mary Ann Jacobs, who was working in the library that day, captured that emotion in her story, writing, It became evident very quickly that we were missing two entire classrooms of kids. As the minutes ticked by and it became obvious that those two entire classrooms of kids were not coming out, I struggled to breathe. Twenty children between the ages of six and seven were dead. Children the same age as my twin daughters. Twenty. I pressed my spine against the doorframe of my kitchen while I sobbed, praying that it would hold my pain. I watched the unfolding coverage in drips as my sick daughter was waking, and I remember thinking she should not associate first grade with murder. By the time my other daughter came home from school, we knew more. Six educators were also killed. We learned it was a lone gunman, 20-year-old Adam Lanza, responsible for this unthinkable tragedy that he killed his mother in their shared home before driving to Sandy Hook Elementary School, shooting his way into the school and devastating a community. He then took his own life. At 316, President Obama spoke to a stunned and grieving nation, and he fought to hold back tears. In that moment, he wasn't only our president, he was also Sasha and Malia's dad. I called my mother from the bathroom, out of earshot of the girls, and I cried harder than I ever had in my life. The shooting happened on a Friday. That following Monday, the usual skeleton crew of parents personally dropping their kids at school had tripled in size. Goodbye hugs lasted longer than usual, and many parents wiped away tears. But I really recognized the magnitude of what had happened when I saw the teachers, usually cheery and bright-eyed to greet our children, those same faces were now swollen, sad, far away. And I realized in that moment what it meant to love and to lose two classrooms full of children. I barely contained myself as I ran back to my car, and I shook with sobs the whole way home. As the years ticked by, Sandy Hook never left me. I joined Moms Demand Action in every town in the weeks that followed and made ending gun violence a priority in my life. I moved forward, painfully aware of the 26 families who didn't have that option. Still, I could not get past it. I was obsessed over the terror those children must have felt. I obsessed over the parents grieving them. 
I thought often about the two classrooms and the others, those nearby, those close to. And when we started collecting stories for this book, I knew it had to be me to work with Sandy Hook, that this was the natural progression of something for me. I just didn't know what. One of the first stories I collected was from Alyssa Parker, the mother of six-year-old Emily Parker, who was murdered that day. As she spoke about Emily's wise beyond her years approach to life, I saw my girls come to life in her story. As she described Emily's love of art and how she and her husband Robbie have pictures Emily drew documenting family events, I looked at my refrigerator covered in portraits of stick-figured people with triangle dresses and three plump fingers. Every story became my story. Every child became my child. And I didn't know how to separate that. And maybe I still don't. Then my worst fear realized. Even though I grieved regularly for those who lost children, I often wondered about those who survived the terror of that day. The kids in the classroom where it happened, where it occurred, how could they possibly move on? How could they possibly grow up? In Susie Aaron's story, I found my answer. Susie's daughter was in Miss Soto's uh, classroom and witnessed not only the death of her classmate, but that of her beloved teacher as well. When we spoke, Susie and I both cried. I don't know if I was crying for her daughter or for my own, for Emily Parker, or maybe all of the above. Her daughter is growing up now, and her life has been defined not by the tragedy of Sandy Hook, but by the love of teachers who, despite their own trauma, worked to heal their students. As the Sandy Hook chapter began to take shape, light began to creep in. And with each week, I was crying less and less in therapy. I met the bravest of women, Abby Clements, Marianne Jacobs, Cindy Clements Carlson, all of whom were in the school, all of whom found the courage and strength to not only navigate their own aftermath, but that of their students. And with each story, the incredible strength of this community became evident and brought comfort to what had been a long-lasting wound. The shooting at Sandy Hook will always be the turning point for this nation. But what has come to define this event isn't the action of one troubled young man, rather the inaction of a full legislature. On April 17, 2013, bipartisan legislature legislation requiring background checks and the banning of some military-style automatic weapons failed in the Senate. Several more attempts at gun control would also fail. But where the government has let these children down, the community has stepped, stepped up. And I've been blessed to have met so many wonderful advocates from Newtown, all of whom were brave and strong enough to stand up when no one else did and to say enough. They are parents, they are teachers, they are community members who continue to fight every day to make sure this doesn't happen to you or to me. They are the bearers of light. Hmm. Thank you so much. There's something about that phrase, that two classrooms full of kids. There's something about that that quantifies the the horrific trauma for me in some weird way that I can I can barely get by that sentence. I don't I don't know. It's hard for me. You know, one thing I've been thinking about, and this is I don't know that we have an answer for this, but I've been thinking a lot about your book focuses on shootings at schools mm-hmm. and universities, and there's a reason why those are remarkable. Because of course, the the victims are innocent. Victims of all these shootings yes, are innocent. So I'm not saying violence. that there's some yes. distinction there, but there's something about young children that is particularly yes. provoking. But also, we have these other shootings that happen. We have a, a shooting in mm-hmm. Buffalo that is 
where the government has a racist, you know, um, ideology that he's enacting and he's actually a white person who's attacking black Americans and killing them deliberately. We have um, in uh, Irvine, California, there's a shooting at a church where that's about politics that involve mm -hmm. China and Taiwan, right? Um, do the causes of these shootings matter? What is there some way to link what's happening? It feels to me like there's like, uh, like we're actually having like some sort of like, the number and pace of shootings right now, like there's some sort of disease happening. Yeah. Like there's a copycat thing. They aren't all the same, but there's some sort of something in the air that's happening, right? And I, I don't know if that sounds crazy to you, but that's what it feels like to me. Even though these these shootings have very different causes, quote unquote causes. I, I think there's, you know, if you if you dig down into the data, there's two or three strains, you know, of similarities that you can pick out. The hatred, racism, you know, a lot of... Uh, the shootings in the 90s revolved around isolationism or bullying or something like that. What they all have in common is that they can walk into any store and get a gun. That's the problem. I mean, all countries have these problems, but not everyone is arming these people to the extent that we are. So the, the virus, the disease, is the ability to buy any kind of gun. So the Buffalo shooter actually could not get his guns in New York and drove south and came 10 minutes up the road from me and walked and bought, you know, an AR-15 or whatever it was that he used and went back to New York and used that gun. So, you know, even if you live in a progressive state that has passed good gun measures, you are still just as safe as the states around you. I mean, that is the argument with Chicago all the time, right? Oh, Illinois has some of the strictest gun laws, but Chicago has the greatest. Well, all those guns come in from the neighboring states. So that's a problem. Like we're, we're only as safe as our neighbors allow us to be. So this is a fight that everyone has to take up, even especially those who live in states where the governors want to protect you and pass good laws, but have trouble enacting them because of what is happening around them. So... Well, I don't. I don't live in one of those states, unfortunately. <laughs> I don't either. I'm in Pennsylvania. <laughs> but I think it's really important. It's really important that you mention the the gunman from Buffalo, going all of out mm -hmm. of his way to get that mm -hmm. rifle because you hear all the time people argue, well, you know, these it's not these guns. I mean, this gun isn't that. You know, you can. No, the guy knew what he mm -hmm. wanted. He's like, this is the best thing to do what I'm mm -hmm. going to do. I am going to go to Pennsylvania and get this gun to do what I'm going to do. And there's a reason why banning assault rifles that. Is, and we did that. And we did that and it was effective. Yeah. And, you know, we need to, to redo that. I don't know if you saw... Um, I'm one of these people who says I don't watch the news and then I start talking about news stories. So I'm getting it from somewhere, obviously. <laughs> um, I don't know if you saw what was going on with... with Twitter is where you're getting <laughs> it from. Beto and Greg Abbott. So I Beto did. Had, and that was so... I was... Yes. What it was is, amazing. Like, yeah. Yeah. So I guess for our listeners... That Greg Abbott's post-Uvalde press conference. Who is the governor of Texas who we heckle all the time on the um, show? And that Beto O'Rourke interrupted him and said, you know, this is this is your doing, right? And, like, the yeah. video of this is astonishing. So for our listeners who haven't seen this, um, I so appreciated this confrontation. And I'm, what did you think about it? Well, and they threw him out. Yeah. And, I mean, I thought it was amazing. A lot of the rhetoric around it is that he 
you know, took a tragedy and made it political and sunk his political career. And I said, I think that's the moment he's going to become the next governor of Texas right there. Because right. He, then he goes outside. So this is what I want people to, to watch. He goes outside and they interview him outside and he's, he's all heated and he's saying all the right things. And what he said is, you know, this kid was 18 years old. He walked into a gun store and he bought two AR-15s and he said, what did we think he was going to do with them? Like, what do we think they're going to do with these guns? You buy those guns to kill more people than you can with a handgun or a rifle. That's it. And I'm not, you know, I grew up in Pennsylvania. I live in Pennsylvania. My father-in-law's a hunter. You know, I have I have some guns in the vicinity of myself, which are hunting rifles which if you wanted to take to a shopping mall and do harm you could but it would take you a really long time to kill more than like three or four people that's the problem like we have to get rid of those guns they just are designed to kill people period and what worries me what keeps me up at night is they are the, the people who want to hurt other people are now out arming the police what happens when we hit that day when they outarm the police, you know, there's, I, I read a statistic somewhere that there's enough guns in this country for every person in this country to have four or five of them. So who has all these guns? That's what worries me. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. Yeah, I mean, I'm a gun owner and a hunter, um, and I do, that's the one, this is the part that I always forget to say, like, the idea that you somehow, there's somehow other than uh, killing people to, to own a, an AR-15 is completely crazy. Um, you know, you would never use that to, to hunt, and, um, and the hunting rifle that you do have is, of course, would be a thing that you can't commit these crimes with. I have a bolt-action 30-06 that you go deer hunting with. You can't reload that thing right. that quickly. You have a you have a double barrel shotgun. You know, I'm sorry, no. these are grotesque things to talk about, but of course we've mm-hmm. been put in this position by bad gun laws. But you know, a a a, a, a hinge action double double barrel shotgun, you're dead. You know, if you start shooting people, somebody will come and yeah. tackle you while you're reloading. I mean, these things can't don't work mm-hmm. without the assault rifles. It's not going to happen. The Second Amendment is really one of the only laws in this country that has not changed in accordance with the technology that it governs you know it was written 200 years ago and think about how much guns have changed in that time it's ridiculous to think that you wouldn't and of course we always forget about the well-regulated part right but it's ridiculous to think that we shouldn't adapt it in some way to what's happening now so that that kind of never made sense for me but I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I hear the arguments and what I keep coming back to is this is a complicated issue. You're essentially trying to get to the the nugget of what makes a person want to hurt other people. Every country wrestles with that. There are several fields of theory that wrestle with that. We're the only country that arms them, period. Like, we have to to scale back the guns, and then maybe we can work on the other stuff, which definitely needs to be worked on. I wonder, did you see the the cover? It was the the New York Times Sunday Review did this um, 
did the, you know, and the the police said that the gunman was able to acquire the weapon legally and they pulled the sentence from like every mm-hmm. shooting that had happened for for many, many years. And that yep. was the cover of the of the review. And it was so um, it was so striking. I appreciated them doing that because, I mean, it gets right to the point yeah. that you're making. And you mentioned earlier that bipartisan legislation that failed in 2013. And I was surprised that, like, I don't know, reading your book, I was like, oh, my God, look, it's Joe Manchin doing something useful. Yeah. Um, who knew yeah. that? And, and Pat, and Pat me also like historically not. Um, I mean, we. I mean, yeah. Joe Manchin, I see as someone who historically right. Terrible. And you know, we're also talking <laughs> on the morning. We're we're talking on June third. So last night, Joe Biden delivered a primetime address um, in which he called for legislation for for gun against um, to prevent gun violence, and he talked about assault weapons. Um, he talked about background checks, and I wonder if you mm-hmm. see here the potential for. Um, like a different kind of motion or if like, I mean, cause it seems to me like, again, there is a level of desensitization that you're talking about, but there are also, I think because of Rob elementary and th- there's also this debate going on right among journalists and people in the media, like generally the media has not included images of children slain um, by bullets. Yeah. And that's of course like an ethical decision, yeah. but then there's also consequences for that meaning that like the public at large does not see um, what these weapons are doing to these like little bodies, my God. Right. And so now, right yeah. now, there's like all of these right journalistic debates about should we start showing this because people really don't seem to get it. And I wonder like yeah. if you think this can be. Well, there is a middle ground, Sugi, which is to write about it. I mean, the descriptions sure. in this book specifically, I think, are are the kinds of things that people should be reading. That's true. I wonder if you see this as any kind of tipping point or if there's a way that we can talk about this differently as as Whitney's suggesting to make this a tipping point it kind of reminds me of the decision whether or not to show the caskets coming back from Vietnam definitely um I think that I've been asked this before I've been on a panel before and somebody asked me do you think, because I think at the time it was a, like around the Parkland shooting and they were asking me, like, do you think the parents should release the photographs to the press? My, where I come down on that is always, that is a, an extremely personal decision and I would never say yes or no, they shouldn't do it. I do think that reading about it is helpful. I think that we can't, uh, sugarcoat things anymore. You know, I get the question a lot, like, how do you talk to the other side? And my answer to that is, well, there's a majority of the other side that you can't talk to. You're never going to win them over. Uh, you can yell at them all you want, but it's not going to happen. But th- hopefully they're small. Um, but I think when you start sharing details with people, so for example, I was talking to somebody Oh, right after Rob Elementary, and I said, and this is hard to hear, so if you you know if you guys want to fast forward thirty seconds, but I said, you know, parents had to donate DNA for their children to be identified in that shooting. Like that's how badly the bodies were mangled. And when you hear something like that, if you're an empathetic, feeling human being, that takes your breath away. You're just kind of like, oh my god. Um, when you see in the newspaper that a casket maker in Texas is making custom caskets for these kids and you see the size of the caskets, 
Stuff like that is effective, like not sugarcoating that kind of stuff anymore. So I think you can create that effect without showing the children or, you know what I mean, directly impacting the families. I don't know. You know, I don't like to even try to imagine how I would react in this situation. Would I show the... I don't know. I, I really don't know. I think it would be... I. I can tell you that I would be so angry that I don't know if anybody can contain me ever. And I don't know how these parents, and I think we're starting to see that they're not doing this, but how these parents just go, like they just have to accept that this happened and and go on, you know, and grieve and feel trauma for the rest of their lives without... I mean, what do you do when you live in a state where the governor is actively passing laws to make you less safe? There's got to be some kind of legal precedent or something that, that these parents can do. I mean, this is not, this was not an accident. This was not, this was, this was directly the result of the gun laws in Texas. So who is responsible for that? The uh, first story in your book is that is a series of Twitter feeds from one who lost her daughter, yeah. Rhonda Hart, um, and that was in at the Santa Fe High School, which is a, I'm going to be totally honest, a shooting that I completely don't even remember. It happened yeah. in 2018. Yeah, it happened while we were working on the book, and I reached out to her, and she could not write, understandably. And I just said to her, is it okay if I go through your Twitter feed and I create a visual story for you? And she said, yeah, go ahead. So I did that. And I spent maybe three weeks just engrossed in her Twitter feed. And it had a really profound effect on me. Like, I, you really feel like you get to know these kids. And, you know, maybe maybe these stories are what needs to be out there more. I mean, that's... But just talking you know. about the violence, that's what I find her writing about. That was the part that I... Yeah. I had a really... That made me feel realize that I had been holding what's happening at a distance. Yeah. You know, you know where she says... She talks about her daughter being shot four times. Yeah. You know, twice with a gun and, and, and with a shotgun and, and, and with a revolver. And then says, when I found out how many times Kim was shot, it shook me to the core four times in her torso. It ruined most of her internal organs. There wasn't anything a doctor could have done. It's mm-hmm. just incredible. Mm-hmm. I think that you have to, I think that's the part when you start talking about, and that's what I, I appreciate about your collection here, that that isn't coming out in the news, right? No. I think understanding what it's like for a parent to go see a child on a gurney Understanding mm-hmm. in later stories that you had about a um, Mindy fin- Finkelstein who mm-hmm. or Finkelstein um, who who survived a shooting, but you know her parents had to care for her, and and the mother's yeah. talking about like I shouldn't be having to clean my daughter's gunshot wounds, yeah. you know, and and that 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 kind of graphic reporting I thought was very useful and was moving to I me. I was really struck by I been moved before. Sorry, I just was yeah, going to briefly it, mention there's the you you mentioned the shooting at um, Heath in in Oregon. Um, and there's the part about the person who's a survivor, Jolene, uh, a survivor of a shooting, and who has to send, send her kid back to the same school, um, which also I found, like, yeah, just trying to imagine myself yeah. and going back to what you said about two classrooms full of students. I think the reason that that sticks with me is that I'm imagining myself walking down a hall and, you know, like, the water fountains that are, like, short because they're for little people and, like... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
it's one of the the most I, I I guess a story that best exemplifies the idea of vicarious trauma for me in this book is the story of Ted Hockhalter, whose daughter Amory was paralyzed at Columbine. And his wife, Amory's mother, who had suffered from mental illness for a long time, um, committed suicide by gun in a very public place only six months after the Columbine shooting. So when you think about, you know, kind of the, the, for lack of better terms, the blast zone of this trauma, right? Now you have people who were in public, in a public place, witnessing a suicide by gun. That's the direct effect of another mass shooting. And, and... You know, I think if I've been asked a lot, like what I want this book to accomplish, and I think what I want this book to accomplish is we need to stop thinking about this as an issue that belongs only to the victims and the survivors. Gun violence has traumatized all of us, and we need to start talking about it that way. It's our responsibility as citizens and as neighbors to the people who've suffered horrific loss at the hands of somebody with a gun it is our responsibility to feel this pain for them to help them hold this pain to do something for them and you know I was very guilty of when I began working with Sandy Hook with the community I was you know there's this sense of ownership like who who owns the pain and who owns the trauma and I remember just being like I don't want to feel I don't want them to feel like I'm kind of voyeuristic going into this or that I'm, you know, kind of uh, using this tragedy for something. And then, you know, it took me a lot of therapy and a lot of talking with the survivors in the community to realize they they want us in on this issue. Like if you have been lucky enough in this country to not lose a child or a family member to gun violence, which I'm, I doubt there's many of us, we've all been touched by it in some way. It is your responsibility to make sure that it doesn't happen again and to support your other community members. So I think we need to start thinking of this as a collective issue. You know, a lot of gun violence advocates were really, you know, when when COVID happened and the pandemic hit and we were all in lockdown, we were taking that so seriously, we were all kind of like, huh, if only we treated gun violence this way, that it is this national emergency that needs our attention right now and we're all in this together. And we need to fix this together. And you just don't see that around this issue. So I'm hoping that this book, you know, if you're reading it and you, you read Rhonda Hart's story or Mindy's story or Jolene's story, that you're it, it hits something with you. And you're kind of like, you know, I, I relate to this person. I relate to the story. And, and I want this. I want to prevent this from happening again. Amy, thank you so much for this conversation. We just appreciate it so much. And we want to encourage our listeners to pick up this extraordinary book. If I don't make it, I love you, survivors in the aftermath of school shootings. And don't forget to check out Amy's other work. Amy, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub. This show is produced by Anne Knigendorf. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. 
In each of these places, you'll find links to our LitHub Radio show notes, including some of the readings we mentioned in this episode. You can also find video versions of our show on our YouTube channel. Our website, with our full video and audio archive and episodes grouped by theme for educators, is at fnfpodcast.net. I want to mention one more thing before I close out our show. Uh, After we hit stop on our recording, Amy mentioned that her book is going to be available in paperback later this year, and you can pre-order that right now. So we will put that link in our show notes too, and we encourage you to pick up a copy of the book. It is really terrific. So until next time, stay safe out there. Take care.